My name is Sean Jordan. Welcome to the Adaptive Outdoorsman Podcast. Here we'll be discussing the history and legacy behind disabled hunters, trappers, anglers, and how they adapt and persevere in the woods, on the line, and on the water. Welcome, everyone, to the podcast. I'd like to introduce our guest, Mike Cullane. Did I get that correct? Cullinane, I guess, is probably, yeah. Cullinane, a professor of U.S. history at Dickinson State University in North Dakota. He received the 2018 Theodore Roosevelt Book Prize for Theodore Roosevelt's Ghost, the History and Memory of an American Icon. Welcome to the show, man. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Look forward to our chat. Yeah. I am definitely looking forward to this, too, as well. I've been talk, telling guests and I've been telling people at random, I want to get more historical U.S. figures that have had ailments and injuries and, <clears throat> you know, things that are they've had to adapt to and overcome to showcase that it has been part of American history for a very long time, especially with our outdoorsmen community. And who better to start with than Theodore Roosevelt? Yeah, that's, um, I mean, it's a great introduction to, I suppose, Theodore Roosevelt's early childhood because he had asthma. He was uh, really badly afflicted by it. And because it kept him indoors, he became a naturalist, which sounds counterintuitive, right? It sounds like, well, if he was sick and he was indoors, he should probably be reading books, which he did do. But I think the curiosity came looking out the window and longing to be in the outdoors because he was stuck inside. And so he would, um, he, he particularly liked looking at birds. He was a big birder or ornithologist and he, mm -hmm. uh, he would, he would spend a lot of time studying birds and studying the outdoors from his window in his, his house in Manhattan. Hmm. Now I know for a fact that if you're stuck indoors, you're going to get cabin fever and most likely that was probably a a, uh, a, ca a causality of that being stuck indoors is like nature must go outside a little bit yeah that is that is the case and i think the other thing that it made him do is he had this kind of mind that worked very scientifically so he's an outdoors person uh by by instinct i think but but also by instinct someone who wants to like understand how things work, either by dissecting them, categorizing them. Um, you know, his first publications when he becomes uh, a young man are about birds and he, he, he just want, he, he listens to them. He observes, uh, observes them and he, he writes about them. And I think that's something that would follow him throughout his life, whether it was founding the Boone and Crockett club as a conservation and hunting organization, whether it's, you know, putting aside, thousands and thousands of acres of forest. You know, this was a part of a, I guess what you would call a taxonomy, a way that he wanted to categorize the natural world. Yeah. And when did you get into Theodore Roosevelt? Yeah. Good question. So I should put my cards on the table here. I'm not a hunter. I am not even much of an outdoors person. Um, <laughs> I'm more of a go to a hotel instead of a campsite, but uh, I have great affection for those and I, and I kind of love, I love nature and I love, I love the affection that other people have for nature. And I think, um, my attraction to Theodore Roosevelt was that he 
had a lot of political enemies, but he managed to break bread with those political enemies in a way that I don't think our politics is kind of apt to do nowadays. So, you know, Mm -hmm. whether you're in a red state or a blue state or whether you're an independent or a centrist or whatever, you're not really mixing with people from other political persuasions. And TR, for me, was a great figure that managed to have dinner with the people that, you know, he disagreed with most. And that's something that I wanted to uh, return to. And then obviously the whole kind of world of Theodore Roosevelt opened up. I got infatuated with his environmental policies, with his, you know, progressive reforms, with his hunting and and what that Mm -hmm. says about the man and the times, you know? So there's there's a lot of him there. It's not just a, a small story that you can dip in and out of. It's it's almost like a, you know, they talk about the Marvel universe of characters. Like there's the Theodore Roosevelt universe and it's, it's really big. Nice. Now, when he got into conservation, he was a lot older. I know that he, was it after the Spanish American war? I think he was probably into the idea of conservation before that, but he wasn't in a political position to make anything of it. So he was an assemblyman in New York, which in which he did, you know, try and promote some ideas of conservation, but not really um, uh, to the extent that he would when he became governor. He becomes governor after the Spanish-American War, as you rightly point out. That's mm-hmm. uh, 1899 for those that are interested in the date. And he's governor for two years before he goes on to become vice president and president. But in all of those roles, although less so for vice president, he pushes this conservative agenda. So he preserves spaces that are mm-hmm. uh, naturally beautiful. He you know, seeks to look after fish and game, particularly in New York when he's governor. And, and most importantly, I think he appoints experts to do this stuff. What he realizes that is that the field of conservation, whether it's forestry or fish and game, there's experts in these areas that are really just, uh, they're quite nascent. They're just beginning to professionalize. And so he mm-hmm. appoints people like Gifford Pinchot, who's going to be the chief forester of the United States, you know, basically gives this guy free reign to dream up the conservation policies of America. Yeah. And obviously those conservation policies have done great things for the America in the West and out here in the East. I remember reading about white-tailed deer becoming basically extinct in, I believe, 1906 or something like that in Indiana. And now you can, you're literally taking out, uh, I think it's State Farm said 20,000 on average a year. Not to mention, I think harvest is usually around 200,000 a year. And that that's thanks to Theodore Roosevelt and the people he, uh, he pointed to doing these jobs because they say North American white-tailed deer across the nation is actually at pre-colonial numbers, if not higher. Yeah, that's interesting. I don't, I don't know the figures for the deer necessarily, but what I can say is what I really like about what you said is that it wasn't just a Western story. You know, this Mm -hmm. is a sort of nationwide story. He would have preserved, uh, say for example, bird reserves in Florida. Uh, you know, Florida has got biodiversity that a lot of states in the country don't have. And, you know, we focus a lot on the Grand Canyon, say, as a site of beauty or Devil's Tower out in Wyoming or or the buffalo in terms of a species. But we don't think necessarily about what Roosevelt did for the birds of Florida or, you know, the white-tailed deer, as you, as you point out. And I think that yeah. is 
that's the big story is that it's more than just the West that he manages to sort of transform or preserve. It's, it's the entire nation's uh, bounty of natural resources. Yeah. I think he had the nice force thought, especially when he became that outdoorsman that went out into the woods and was hunting, fishing, trapping. He saw it was a limited resource that people were just waylaying around and not caring about. And it was just going away. And I know one of the reasons why they started the Boone and Crockett club was to record all the species as they were going out. And instead it actually helped spark keeping species in. Yeah. So the Boone and Crockett club is such a fascinating organization. I, you know, I, I think Theodore Roosevelt's contribution to that was first as a hunter. And then the other thing that I mentioned earlier on was this idea of classifying, categorizing, organizing, you know, documenting that scientific brain kicks in. And of course the Boone and Crockett club is responsible for a lot of the conservation efforts. Uh, I mean, hunters in general, I think often get a bad rap. And I think Theodore Roosevelt as well, in the sense that they're seen as um, merely depleting a resource, right? Killing mm -hmm. animals, um, but actually the, the hunting can, and in the case of the Boone and Crockett Club, can preserve the species as well in order for them to be hunted, which seems uh, uh, contradictory, but it's, it, it, in practice, it makes a lot of sense. And South Africa is a really good example. Theodore Roosevelt didn't hunt in South Africa, but he did in East Africa, in Kenya and Uganda. And mm -hmm. um, it was different back in his time, but now we've seen how hunters have become one of the leading forces for conservation in places like South Africa, where there are endangered species. They're, they're breeding them in some cases to hunt them, but the, their numbers are rising as a result too. Yeah. And also if we can go with South Africa, for instance, a lot of those animals are male dominated. So you have one male that's going to lead an entire whole a herd of like giraffe you have that one bull that can live over 18 years. He can possibly kill uh, younger bulls even after he has no longer the ability to breed, which hinders their ability to reproduce. And so by with hunting, paying, you know, those exorbitant uh, fees over there, going in, having that one bull picked out allows for the younger bulls that can reproduce to step in and you're extending the generation, you're creating more diverse generations and the herd can grow bigger because of it. That's interesting. I hadn't, I hadn't even considered that. I, I have no doubt that Theodore Roosevelt would have, because he was a hunter, but as I mm -hmm. said, I'm not, and I wouldn't have even considered that, but that's the sort of nuance that I think uh, being an outdoors person and a hunter brings to the party is that, you know, mm -hmm. uh, you know, as an academic who largely studies politics, that's something I would have missed. Yeah. I mean, it's the same way. And I believe it, it's the same way that uh, elk, deer, and other populations have been able to rise is because there's so many males that it's hurting the female population. While you take out a, major a lot of the males, it allows for a smaller portion of them to actually propagate better. I know with uh, teal ducks, they'll literally kill a female just trying to mate with her. Or no, mallard ducks. And so hunting has actually helped a lot of these 
hunting and agriculture actually has helped a lot of animals thrive where they shouldn't. Now, I will say that's not always the case, if I can just play devil's advocate for a moment. So when Theodore Roosevelt, I mean, you might know this story about him going to Africa in 1909 after he leaves the White House. Um, On that trip, it was a nine month long safari through East Africa, British controlled East Africa. Um, He kills 11,000 species. Uh, Actually, I should say 11,000 individual kills. Some of them Mm -hmm. were the same species. For example, he killed an entire family of elephants in one go. He also shot the white rhino, which he knew then was an endangered species. And I suppose the the way we might rationalize that hunting trip is by saying that many of those species then went to the Museum of Natural History or the Smithsonian. This was a expedition that was really designed to be scientific in nature and one in which we often take for granted nowadays because we can see a white rhino on YouTube. But back in those days, to see a white rhino in the United States, you would have need to have visited a museum, someone would have had to kill, and then someone would have stuffed the the white rhino. But it's still one of those hard things I I often find with my students. It's hard for them to rationalize the killing of 11,000 things, living things, even if it is for a scientific expedition. And I wonder wonder how other hunters feel about that, because it's a lot. It's a lot of killing. Mm -hmm. Well, I would think about is what did the meat actually go to a good place then? If it was just waylaid to the way, you know, discarded and left for animals to take and eat, then, you know, as, as a conservationist hunter in today's age, we hunt for the meat. And so is that animal being preserved in terms of going towards the, the local tribes? Is that animal, uh, or being discarded or is it going to a purposeful thing? Like the elephants, that's a lot of meat. Well, the elephants, um, I don't know if the meat was used by the, for the elephants, but I know that the elephant family exists in the diorama in the American Museum of Natural History. So I can understand that to that extent as a scientific yeah. expedition. There was two-thirds of the, of the species that are captured, killed, and, and then stuffed. Uh, I should say two-thirds of the 11,000 go to museums or for scientific study. The other one third, as you rightly pointed out, is actually used for feeding the expedition. So whatever meat was usable, they did use, and it wound up being about a one third of the overall 11,000 killed. Yeah. I mean, you said it was what, nine months you said? Yeah. Nine months. Yeah. Nine months. You're going to harvest a lot of animals if you're living off the land that way. I mean, depending on the crew size and how many people were with him at that time, I mean, and he's responsible for feeding the people. That is a lot of that is a lot of animals. Yeah, no, it is. I think it, it's often just the um, the scale of it that students that I talk to and, and others that I talk to often grapple with. It seems like a lot, but then again, as I said, this was a um, Smithsonian and um, American Museum of Natural History funded expedition, so that's one way to rationalize it. Yeah. So, like you said, it was uh, it was a th- I was what you said third of the popular a third of the animals that he killed actually went to food, and the other ones went straight to museums, and that's a lot of museums over the United States to go to. Well, and that brings us back to TR's youth. So, when he was young, he used to uh, kill and stuff all sorts of things. I mean, everything from mice and and water voles to badgers to then 
uh, in some cases, birds as well. Um, and those specimens from his youth, he, he made, you know, TR is a, he was a really wealthy, uh, his parents were very wealthy. He had a big house and he was able to display these specimens when he was a young child, but he donated them then to the American Museum of Natural History, which his father, Theodore Roosevelt, also senior, founded. And so nice. the sort of naturalism bug was a big part of his youth. And some of the older, um, when he got older, some of the specimens that he collected also went to museums like Museum of Natural History, but also the Smithsonian in D.C. as well. So um, he really does have a long, long relationship with nature from his youth, really right up until his death in 1919. Yeah. So when did he kick... I want to get back to his youth a little bit here. When did he kick, uh, not really kick, obviously asthma is a lifelong uh, ailment, but when did he get past that enough to be able to just go into the outdoors and do what he's done? Yeah, so I think um, you're, you're right to point out that asthma never goes away, and I don't think TR's asthma ever completely goes away, but he does – grow out of the worst of it by the time he goes to college. So he goes to Harvard University in 1876. And by that time, he's just sort of emerging from the worst of his asthma attacks. And that's when he becomes more of a sports person. He become he gets into boxing. Um, he gets into, uh, he gets into clubbing really and being a, a much more social creature. He actually didn't have, he didn't attend any formal education before Harvard. So mm. he was, schooled at home by a tutor. And then he goes from like basically what is a very sheltered existence in Manhattan to now you're on your own in Boston. And I think for TR throughout his life, uh, trauma was always followed by adventure. So let me give you an example. When he's in Harvard, his father, who he adored, dies, I think it's 1878. He dies in 1878, which is about his junior year in college. And it, it really sort of hits TR and he goes off to Maine with, uh, with a guy who would eventually become a major guide in his life, a guy called Bill Sewell. Um, and the expedition in Maine is in all the way up in Island Falls, which if you're familiar with Maine is like really north in Maine. There's nothing up there. There's no roads. And this is, he loves this, you know, this out, this sort of being out in the middle of nowhere and it, that would happen again and again. So when his wife and his mother die on the same day, uh, January or February 14th, uh, Valentine's Day, mm -hmm. um, he goes out to the Badlands of North Dakota to escape his demons, basically. And he would do that again and again throughout his life when uh, after a very momentous sort of moment or trauma, he then escapes to the outdoors as a means of relief and respite. So yeah. it's a it's a really interesting theme in his life, and I think it's a restorative one. I think TR often thought about life as being restorative that he could you could fix yourself nearly by going out into the outdoors and resetting. Yeah, and I have a lot of people I've talked to firsthand accounts of they've literally just had a traumatic event, and they went out into the woods, and it made them calm down. It made them more relaxed. It allowed them to process things. Uh, a guy I talk about a lot is Carson Nyheis. He's a, the uh, president of Hunt to Heal up in Michigan. He was in an auto 
accident with a, a single uh, motorcycle accident where he hit a tree and broke his neck. And his buddy literally picked him up after all this. He picked him up literally and took him out to a blind and they just watched nature. And he got the idea to start a nonprofit because of that. See, there you go. I mean, I think there's, there's, there is something about that. As I said to you, when I go into the outdoors into a tent, the first thing I think is where's the nearest hotel. But, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but, but for some people, you know, I think, and I, and I completely understand it. There's this sort of, it's like a, it's like a reset button. And for TR, it was, that was very much it. I mean, I think even after the presidency, for example, Going to Africa was that reset, the, mm-hmm. the, the reset. I, I also think when he loses the 1912 election, he goes on this expedition to Brazil, which is incredible. And if you want to talk about ailments in his life, sometimes the outdoors are not the reset button. Sometimes they're actually, they're detrimental to TR's health. Like that Brazil trip, he gets a really, picks up a really nasty infection in his thigh and his health deteriorates. He gets, he gets malaria again. So I don't want to present the outdoors as, as naturally restorative for him. I think he believes it is. I think in some yeah. cases it actually hurts him though. You know, like in the case of Brazil. Yeah. Too much of a good thing is a bad thing. Well said. Getting, getting outdoors and enjoying it. But when you, but everything has an inherent danger to it. Hunting has an inherent danger. Hiking has that inherent danger. I mean, people out west, you can run into wolves, bears, mountain lions, and the the likes. In you know my state, we have brown recluses, which are fun. I do not want to touch. <laughs> well, I think the other thing about um, TR and, and and this sort of story about understanding the dangers of nature. Uh, there was a big debate in the late 19th and early 20th century about how dangerous nature was. And there was yeah. a lot of like, uh, uh, well, he called them nature fakers. A lot of writers that would talk about the outdoors as if it was uh, almost human. You know, they call that anthropo- anthropomorphication. When you take yeah. an animal and you try and present it as a human. And there was a lot of writers that wrote about wolves like this. They wrote about wolves as if they were kind of cute and cuddly. And the only reason why... They, they bit or attacked was because, uh, because humans provoked them. And TR was intent on attacking that line of thinking. And so a lot of the, the, the stuff that he wrote, TR was a prolific writer um, mm-hmm. and about nature as well. He wrote about a dozen books about hunting in the outdoors. But one of his lines is really that nature is dangerous and you have to treat mm-hmm. it with respect. And if you don't treat it with respect, it will come to bite you. And it's not the, it's not the wolves fault. The wolves are naturally predisposed to bite, uh, mm-hmm. despite the fact that literary writers were saying it's, it's humans fault. Yeah, no, I know it is a lot of humans fault when it comes to interacting with animals, especially out in Yellowstone. You see those stories of people getting out of their cars and trying to pet bison. Mm. I'm, I mean, I got f- bison five minutes from my house and they're in a high fence cage. It's about 72 acres, but you know, I mean, it's a nice sized herd, but at the same time, they're in a high fence to keep the people from interacting with them. And at Yellowstone, they say, they advise, I think it's 40, 20 or 40 yards away from the animals at all times. And for predators, you stay a hundred plus. Yeah. 
So we had a we had a couple of fun experiences this summer. Uh, my family we went to Theodore Roosevelt National Park, which is in Medora, North Dakota, and we went to Custer State Park, of course, in South Dakota. And uh, in both on both occasions, we had run-ins with bison, and uh, they're huge, obviously. But in mm-hmm. Theodore Roosevelt National Park this summer, just before we had gotten there, a woman had been mauled by a bison. She got too close, so I think she wanted to pet it, which is just outrageous. Mm-hmm. And the bison, you know, harmed her to the extent that I, I think she was in t- intensive care for quite a while. Mm-hmm. And then in Custer State Park, when we were there, we got surrounded by about 250 bison. A big herd had just been passing through. And you know yourself, they just take their time. They're not on your schedule. So we were there. For about a half an hour in the car and my god they are not only are they immense but you know when you get that close to them even the metal and steel of a car you don't feel protected so no. you gotta you're be like, very careful yeah you're saying you're always like okay windows rolled up don't touch anybody don't make them angry we will just stay here they're fine they're not going to get angry at us because we they don't perceive us as a threat yet let's not total the vehicle Absolutely. I've, and and that's, that's all you can do. I mean, it's, you're kind of helpless in those situations. I've literally seen video of a bison versus a pickup and it pushed the pickup. This is a 1500 Sierra and it got moved like it was n- nothing. I mean, you or I can literally just be pushing a box or something. I mean, that's how well these things are built. One of my fa- my favorite lines about TR and this this issue about the nature fakers, as he called them, he um, he wrote about one literary writer who who said that wolves were not dangerous at all, and he he wrote a scathing review. And he was he was president at the time. Can you imagine, you know, Joe Biden or Donald Trump writing a review about uh, uh, literature? But TR wrote this this you know review of the book and said it was absolute hogwash. And then mm-hmm. the, the author came back and said to him, it's not. And he called TR a bully. And he said that, you know, it's, it's people like TR that, you know, that, that make nature, a, give nature a bad name. And the reporters, the reporters came back to TR and they said, so what do you think about this? You know, this comment that the, the literary guy said, and he says, I don't shoot a uh, small game twice. And I thought that was a great line about, you know, how he felt about nature and how he felt also about arguing about it. He put his ideas out there for the rest of the, uh, for the rest of the world to contend with. And uh, he let them, he let them deal with it. So people like Carl Ackley and, and uh, 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 the Audubon society, these are groups that actually came to TR's sort of rescue when this was happening and picked up the debate saying, no, these literary types are out of their mind. Nature is really quite a dangerous thing. Yeah, I agree. So is there any other instances where Theodore Roosevelt had to argue with people who are trying to humanize uh, the wildlife? I don't think other than, you know, the, the, na- the sort of what they call the nature fakers debate, there's much of that. I guess TR's biggest argument was with politicians that uh, didn't want to allow land to be nationally sort of managed and natural resources managed. So what's interesting though, I guess, about his presidency is that obviously he's quite famous for preserving national forests, national monuments, bird preserves, game preserves. 
Um, but he's also really responsible for our sort of modern thinking about the stewardship of national natural resources. So mm-hmm. I, I mean by that, not just like the, the timber and the, uh, the mineral wealth of the nation or even the oil, which he does play a leading role in, in that as well. But I also mean yeah. in, in terms of he manages things like irrigation in the West. So a lot of our contemporary debates over where the Colorado river should go date back to Theodore Roosevelt, you know, anything around damming, anything around how you irrigate the West. I mean, Phoenix, for example, right now is going through a major transition about how they get water to their city a lot of that debate stems back to the debates that were happening at the beginning of the 20th century and that involved the likes of Theodore Roosevelt and his chief lieutenant, Gifford Pinchot. So yeah. uh, this, these are all live issues, you know? Yeah. And a lot of that back then, there wasn't as big of a population to deal with. Like you said, with uh, Phoenix, Arizona getting water. Now there's how many cities with countless populations that these ideas need to be rethunk and and reinvented essentially to be able to capitalize on the amount of water needed and also keeping the area around it from suffering as well. I think sadly the, 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 the last chance for Phoenix is the desalination of the oceans. I mean, that's what they're talking about now. Um, yeah. In a lot of cases, the advice of Theodore Roosevelt and Gipper Pinchot weren't followed um, and cities have been, you know, basically, using too much water um, mm-hmm. and not not allowing the rivers to flow in a way that is going to be sustainable. So I think it's become a real problem. I think the other thing about the West was always around, you know, ranching and how best to use the land appropriately. And when do we fence? When do we not fence? All of those debates go back to Theodore Roosevelt. And the same with oil extraction as well, right? I mean, North Dakota mm-hmm. is a state which is, um, you know, getting rich on the on the basis of the back and oil fields. You know, how do we yeah. sustainably extract that natural resource wealth without destroying the environment around mm-hmm. us? And I think Pinchot and Roosevelt had really big, brave ideas about how to do that. And I don't know, are we always living up to those nowadays? And I'm not saying that North Dakota is an example, because I think in some cases, North Dakota is doing a great job. Um, yeah. But it's a it's a major question. And what we what I would like to see us do is the same thing that TR and Pinchot argued for, which is get the experts out who really know what they're talking about. These are people that study for years to learn mm-hmm. about how to engineer oil extraction in a way that's sustainable. And I think yeah. the oil companies have these people, right? They're working for them now. And then yeah. also get them into government, give them good salaries in government where they can they can explain this knowledge of the environment. So it's 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 not really that hard. It's been done before. Yeah. The only counter to those is usually you got to get them before their understanding of greed, before somebody starts paying them off. Because one of the biggest problems, especially with the government paid scientists or employees and whatnot is, I mean, you see this back in the early 1900s about lead paint. These uh, companies were paying scientists to promote their propaganda, essentially, and who's got the most money right now would be a government saying, okay, well, you just tout this number and this number and we're good. But you know, I, they need to get those new, younger people who are more enthusiastical about the projects to do the job versus those who have become jaded by the job. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that. I mean, I think back in the day as well, 
TR's time I'm talking about, there were people that were absolutely committed to the sort of writing of the social ills. So you could think about, mm-hmm. there's a guy called uh, uh, Wiley who was you know, famously involved in uh, food purity, which leads to the Pure Food and Drug Act, which TR signed. Um, and then there's also people like, you know, in, in the, the forestry and in environmental uh, sciences that were, were leading the way of the, say, the U.S. Geological Survey. Um, I think you're right that there's going to be those people that are jaded and easily corruptible. But I also think that there's people that are absolutely dedicated to preserving the future of the United States and, and I, you know, and of every country, you know, in the global mm-hmm. sort of, you know, climate change sort of way. And I think those are the people that we need to pay more money. We need to give them good pensions. We need to make sure that they stay within government service. And um, that's not always a popular idea because I think a lot of times people think bureaucracy is naturally a bad thing. TR disagreed vehemently. TR was one of the biggest architects of American bureaucracy. If you want to talk about a swamp, TR created mm-hmm. the swamp. I mean, the, the the federal government grows exponentially, and and what he allow what he does is is he instills trust. So mm-hmm. you can get bigger and you can pay people more as long as you trust them. And I think yeah. that's the big thing. If you can trust your government employees, then you're onto a winning thing. Yeah, it's the low level guys, not so much problem. It's when you know the higher ups that are making decisions that don't really affect them, I think is the thing that aggravates people a lot. Uh, well, to use one of TR's most famous quotes, no one cares how much you know until they know how much you care. Yeah, right? right? I mean you have to you have to demonstrate, you have to earn respect. And I think that's the same in politics as well. Mm-hmm. That's why a lot of people have issue with unelected bureaucrats in general is they're saying you should be doing this for us. You shouldn't be making this, which in a lot of ways, if they're making legislation without actually legislating, yeah, I can see that. But in the case of TR and what he did for the nation as a conservationist, it has been something that we trust even now, I mean, there's a lot of science-based, like you said, he loved documenting things, and there's a lot of science-based uh, ethical conservation going on in the country that there are certain people that in power don't even care about still. No, and I think that idea of like a sort of pork belly politics where, you know, you, you go back to your constituents and your constituents say, you know, we don't, we don't want this land to be preserved for national use or for national beauty – um, that's, you know, that's still back in TR's time too. Um, mm-hmm. in terms of combating it though, you know, the expertise really came not only in handy, but it was essential to make sure that, you know, yeah. say for example, I- I'll give you a really good example in South Dakota, the national park that Seth Bullock ran there, Seth Bullock was a big friend of TR. They had a problem with a beetle that was boring into trees and was leaving a blue streak in the timber. And then also killing off a lot of these trees as well. It was a fu- the blue streak would lead to fungus, and then it would infect yeah. other trees. What Bullock was able to do was able to effectively not eradicate the beetle, but make sure that it was mm-hmm. on a much smaller scale. Timber companies were delighted about this. Ranchers were delighted about it because the timber area, the national forests, were absolutely essential for them to graze and to to get water. So it's a matter of looking at the environment as an ecosystem and that if you if you manage the whole thing and you have experts that manage the whole thing effectively and trustworthy 
management, mm-hmm. then it's something that I think we can all get behind. I think the problem is often, as you point out, that there are ulterior interests, usually economic in nature, um, mm-hmm. that can corrupt that system of trust and expertise. Yeah. So I wanted to get back to Theodore Roosevelt in his youth and, well, one of the things that he's most iconic for is his eyesight, which was his glasses. What was his sight actually documented? Oh, I don't know what his sight is in 2020 or whatever. I don't know what the actual number is, Uh, but I can tell you his eyesight isn't great and it's not great throughout his life. In fact, it gets worse. After the conservationist Gifford Pinchot punches him in the face, um, they they were boxing, um, and they boxed frequently when he was governor mm-hmm. and president. Um, and on one occasion, Gifford Pinchot punched him and knocked him down, and his um, it's likely that his uh, lens got um, knocked out of place when that yeah. happened. But he basically went blind eventually in in one eye. But yeah, I mean, he's called four eyes from when he's, you know, a, a young boy to when he's, um, you know, an older man. So um, that is something that he lives with. I mean, the other thing is, is his hearing as well is quite poor. We haven't really talked about all of his afflictions yet, but he's got mm-hmm. he's got quite a few. I mean, his hearing by the end of his life, he's he's deaf in one ear. As I mentioned, he's blind in one eye. He's gotten malaria twice. He got it in Cuba in 1898. And I don't know um, if you or your listeners know about this, but when you get malaria twice, two different strains, it can be really, really deadly. So yeah. um, he's got two two strains of malaria, one from Brazil, one from Cuba. He's got a, a major, um, it gets into a, a really bad car accident, actually, when he becomes president. And this is a really, a really crazy time in American political history, because he gets hit by a trolley car, his Secret Service officer dies. The first time a Secret Service officer would die in in um, protecting the president. And TR is so badly damaged his, his leg that he's in a wheelchair for weeks. In fact, when he negotiates the coal strike of 1902, he does it in a wheelchair, which almost no one uh, uh, remembers. So that, that would plague him for his life. And it would come back to haunt him in Brazil when he gets sick in Brazil. He's got some nasty infections elsewhere in his body, his teeth, his backside. I mean, he's really a mess by the time he dies in 1919. Now, after the presidency and all that fun afflictions hit, was he still able to go out and do hunting? Yes. I mean, he, you know, by the end of his life, um, he still very much liked listening to birds. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know when the hunting stops. Um, but I imagine that in his last year of life, he's not out hunting because he was really quite ill, but I mean, the trip that he makes to Brazil on that expedition is, and it ends in 1914. So, um, he is, uh, very active up until the end of his life. Um, and the, the bird watching never stops listening. That's, he, he mainly watch birds by listening to them. Yeah. Well, I mean, they, that's a great thing to have at least though that way if he was bedridden or whatnot open the window let me hear the birds yeah absolutely and he would go out onto oyster bay his home is in long island uh, sagamore hill in long island and uh he would go out onto oyster bay there and um he would row and row and him and his wife would go out in fact when he was president him and his wife would walk nearly every morning so he was he was a very active person and i don't mean that just in terms of his physical you know, his physical engagement with the outdoors, 
I mean, he had a, a schedule every day that he wrote up for himself. He, they said he read a book every day. I mean, he, as I said, he wrote prolifically. He authored 40-odd books, uh, a, a countless number of articles, over 150,000 letters. It's like he didn't take a pause for anything. Drank, drank about a gallon of coffee a day. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a life that, well, as Kathy Dalton put it in her biography, a strenuous life. Yeah. I mean, that much continuous work, your body's going to be used to it, but at the end, you're not going to be happy about it. But hey, you live for the, the journey, not the end. That's a great way of putting it, yeah. <laughs> so what got you into podcasting? I know we're jumping to a different category now. We're talking about you again. <laughs> uh, well, that's that's easily answerable. So in 2020, when the pandemic hit and we all went into lockdown, I was sort of terrified of the four walls closing in on me. And I thought, well, I can't go to conferences anymore. I can't, um, I can't see my colleagues anymore. So I thought it would be great to talk to people that I respect and have written books and are doing exciting things probably in the same way you, you, you know, you're doing as a podcaster, you know, mm -hmm. reaching out to people that you, um, you want to talk to. And so that kind of kept me sane during the pandemic. And I found, I quite enjoy talking to people. So, um, right. I've carried it on. Yeah. Yeah. I know we, we always, uh, love talking about how we have the voice of radio, but not the face of radio. That's for Yeah. For me, for sure. I, yeah. I like radio. Yeah. I, listen to it occasionally the radio in terms of songs but i never actually listen to the morning shows it's too early in the morning when i'm driving well it's also an on-demand world so i i tend to listen to radio or or podcasts really i listen to a lot of podcasts audiobooks that sort of stuff i know you've got dogs i've got uh, a, a whippet which is a small you know kind of like a mini greyhound and mm -hmm. uh, she likes to go out for a run every day for about an hour and so that gives me time to Take her out and listen to a, a good podcast. Hey, that's always a good thing to do. And I know we talked earlier about it before the podcast, but you're currently in Ireland, which is one of the reasons why we had the fun schedule of trying to find uh, time to record. And But you also live in North Dakota. Do you spend, prefer time in North Dakota or Ireland? Oh, that's uh, so unfair. <laughs> I mean, they both have... Um, they both have their charm. I mean, uh, and both, you know, both are now home. So um, mm -hmm. I do love the Badlands of North Dakota. I do really like Dickinson, North Dakota. It's a, it's the university there is such a vital center for, for Western North Dakota. And I love Ireland. I mean, you know, in the same breath, both of them have their faults. Ireland in, in for a lot of the year can rain incessantly. It's why it's so green. And the Badlands, the reason why it's so dry is because, you know, the weather in the summer is so hot and dry and lovely, but in the winter, my God, the snow and the cold and the wind, I have never experienced mm. wind like I have in North Dakota. So, uh, climate wise, they, they both have their ups and downs. Yeah. you like, you like going to the Badlands in summertime. Then when fall hits, you're like, we're going to Ireland. Deal time to get out. As soon as the first yeah. frost hits, time to get out. <laughs> Now, I know we talked earlier as well about uh, the Theodore Roosevelt Presidential Museum. Uh, you, now I'll just say, why don't you could explain what that is and when? Well, I mean, I think that. for your listeners, anyone that's going to be visiting 
uh, the Midwest, the North Midwest at any stage in the next, well, it's set to open in 2026, July 4th, 2026, which as you, nice. you probably already know is the 250th anniversary of the United States. So it's a big birthday party for America on July 4th, 2026. TR Presidential Library is going to open up in Medora, North Dakota. And uh, this is a beautiful place to visit. Um, but also the library is going to draw people into the history of the place the history of Theodore Roosevelt. And, and I suppose more importantly than all of that, it's going to talk about why that period in American history and why TR is, is useful and vital for us today. And if you yeah. remember what I said to you about why I got into TR, it was because I thought our politics was dysfunctional. And mm -hmm. I always liked that TR was able to uh, sort of work with people that he disagreed with. And I think the library is going to do a lot of that heavy lifting. I don't mean around politics necessarily, but around hunting, right? I mean, they're going to be able to explain to people why TR is a hunter, why that can make sense to people that are not hunters. So it's yeah. kind of like a big translation project. It's going to be beautiful, 90,000 square feet. It's like a almost a $400 million project. It's going to be stunning. The architects, Snowheda, are a Scandinavian firm uh, that have designed this beautiful um, design. The design is sort of so non-intrusive. The building barely registers on the landscape. And, uh, and so it's trying to keep with this conservation and sustainable um, ethos that, the, that TR had himself as well. So yeah. I can't wait till it opens. I can't wait till people get to see it. And I just think it's going to be like the Mount Rushmore of North Dakota. Oh, that's good. <laughs> but, and you get to do that as your full-time job. You're still going to make time for Ireland then, right? Well, you know, the, the other thing the pandemic did is it's made the world even more global. So like we're talking now, it's uh, what is it? It's almost two o'clock my time here. It's almost nine o'clock your time. You know, the mm -hmm. world has gotten a lot smaller. We can do things now. And I know the people at the TR Presidential Library, they work across maybe five or six time zones. Wow. So, you know, they, they, this, is a, this is a global initiative. And I think the way education works now is global, too. So this yeah. is um, this is a. Probably something that the pandemic has hastened. Well, that's good, at least, being able to create uh, something where everybody from all walks of life can go and do something and build upon. I know, my words are escaping. I'm still having my coffee this morning. <laughs> normally, I'm, uh, normally, when I do the podcast, I'm the one that's been awake for several hours at a time. And talking to a person several time zones away from me on the uh, west coast of the United States, so this is new for me. I'm I, I think I'm not going to have any more excuses on why I'm tired. <laughs> Very good, yeah. But yeah, so um, do you ever plan on eventually taking up and following in Theodore Roosevelt's footsteps about hunting? I don't know. I mean, I. I don't have um, an appetite to shoot things. I like fishing um, and I like, I like sitting in nature, actually. I like just sitting yeah. and watching things go by. Um, I, I really wondered, too, how much Theodore Roosevelt would shoot nowadays. I think big game, probably yes. I almost mm -hmm. think, almost certainly, he, he very rarely shot a bird when he was alive. I think... Now he would he would just advocate use of the camera for that sort of stuff, but yeah. um, I, I I don't know I don't I also you know not really into guns either. So I know that some of your listeners might 
be like, a gun is a thing that I, I, I can understand why people are really mm-hmm. interested in it and the technology and all that. But for me, it doesn't really do it. I'm also not into cars either. People are really yeah. into cars, you know, like different strokes for different folks, as they say. Hey. And I'm, I'm all for that. But yeah. for me, I'm probably better off just watching, watching nature go by. Yeah. Well, I use firearms on the occasion, but mainly it's for me, I just do bow season. Okay. Yeah. Right. That gets you a lot closer. It's a lot harder too, right? Yeah. And, uh, using a crossbow, you think, you know, scope, okay. Gun, uh, style shooting, but in reality is it's actually maximum 50 yards with a cross with a crossbow even. Wow. I mean, yeah, there's too many variables in there, which you hit a twig or something. It can throw every shot off. So hmm. interesting. Yeah. A lot more things to consider on that. So where do you see yourself being in five years? Oof, that's a good question. I have no idea. I guess I'm, I'm thinking only as far as about three years down the road when the library opens. But mm-hmm. uh, I love working at Dickinson State University. I love doing the podcast work. I love doing the writing. I've got a hopefully a manuscript that I'll get written up about TR's presidency in the next uh, few months. And yeah, generally speaking, I hope to be doing the same thing. Um, although at some stage I would like to write about someone other than Theodore Roosevelt. This will be my third book on TR. Um, I've got a few ideas of where I might go, but, uh, I gotta get this, this book done first. Yeah. Yeah. So you're thinking probably Abe, Abe Lincoln. No, I, I might get away from the presidents altogether and, and try and talk about, I, you know, there's a lot of characters that I've come into touch with over the last few years. There's, uh, secretaries of state, aides mm-hmm. to the president. Uh, activists, uh, all sorts of people. And um, yeah, I think I'd really like to figure out how they fit into that Gilded Age world. Mm-hmm. I, I know uh, I learned her in another one podcast a while back. It was about Holt Collier, the guy that took uh, Theodore Roosevelt hunting for bear, I believe. Yeah, it was bear. In Mississippi, that's right. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I had to get on the bear subject, so. Well, that's that, a, that's also the famous teddy bear story. So you know he doesn't yeah. doesn't kill the bear, and the toy makers think that this is genius. And of course, Clifford Berryman draws that cartoon of the teddy bear as well. So that doesn't mm-hmm. hurt. Yeah, and I think that's one of the start of why people think bears are so cuddly and cute. There's certainly a bit of that. That goes back to what I was saying about the nature fakers. And, yeah, uh, yeah, that that's that's part of the story. All right. Yeah, I saw a meme a while back. To let, somebody was like pointing out the ears of a bear. And like, if nature, if these bears are so dangerous, then why did they point them with such cute ears? I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> All right, I've got to, uh, Sean, I got to scoot off. I got to go actually pick up the kids who get out of school in the next 15 <laughs> minutes or so. Um, yeah. Well, you have fun with that. Thank you for coming on and being my guest, man. It's been a fun one. It's learning about our well one of my most favorite favorite presidents i don't need to say anything else about you because you have three books on him exactly uh, mine too thanks so much for having me on sean oh thank you thank you too uh do you want to tell people where they can reach you real fast sure uh you can just go to michaelpatrickcullinane.com which is my website and there's more there about me including uh ways to reach out and contact me if you've got any questions about tr or indeed about the theodore roosevelt presidential library all right. Well, thank you, everyone, for coming and joining our guest, Michael Kling. I think I just said it wrong again. 
but uh, thanks, man. I'll, and remember, everyone, stay adaptive. <laughs>